So friends, the first time I can remember um, January 6th being a notable date on the calendar came sometime in my young adulthood after I began to personally identify as a Christian. Though it had not been a tradition my family had observed growing up, as an adult, I learned that for a number of Christians, Christmas was understood not to be only one day at the end of December, but a period of celebration, 12 days of marking the birth of Jesus, beginning with the celebration on December 25th and concluding on January 6th with the festival of Epiphany. I came to appreciate the invitation to linger in the celebration a bit longer, allow it to take us into the new year. I think it was in my season as a pastor on staff at the church in Iowa, I first was a part of a church that celebrated Epiphany. And here at Haven, we have in different ways, often at least noted this tradition in early January, sometimes teaching on the stories at the center of Epiphany, sometimes engaging in practices connected with the tradition. And then three years ago, of course, the date of January 6th took on an altogether new and novel meaning. There were hints of what was coming when the former president of the United States, who had just lawfully lost his reelection campaign to Joe Biden, tweeted an invitation to his followers just a week before Christmas. Big protest in DC on January 6th, be there, will be wild. The rest is of course now the stuff of history. January 6, 2021 is the date that a violent mob of US citizens attacked their own capital, trying to stop the lawful certification of the presidential election for Joe Biden that was taking place in the joint session of Congress. They were doing this in response to and encouraged by that former president who was desperate to hold on to power. And while they were ultimately not successful in overturning those results of the election, of course the mob did significant damage. One rioter was shot and killed that day. Two cop Capitol Police officers lost their lives in the melee. Other officers took their own lives in the following weeks. So distressed they were by the trauma of their experiences there. And in the last three years, now over 1,200 people have been arrested in connection to the January 6th attack on the Capitol. The Justice Department continues to pursue cases. Around 900 have currently pleaded guilty or been convicted. Many are serving time in prison. Hundreds of other cases are pending. By the time it's all said and done, there could be double the amount of defendants involved. Now, when we were watching that coverage of the mob of people breaking through those barriers and storming into the Capitol three years ago, I remember feeling aware of a kind of haunting irony that this event was taking place on Epiphany. Soon after the event was underway, I found myself on a Zoom call with a few of you. Connie was there, Sylvia, I think we were connecting to pray about what was happening. And I remember reflecting on that irony together. Epiphany is a celebration around the idea of sacred revelation. Christians often use this day or the season of Epiphany to think about moments of clarity that reveal God's presence in a significant way. Whether it's the moment the Magi appear, having followed the star that's revealed to them, the divine presence in the birth of a child, 
or it's the moment the carpenter walks into the Jordan River and a voice booms from heaven and a dove descends. These are moments in our tradition of miraculous encounter, of something hidden becoming revealed. And as we prayed on January 6th, 2021, I, we prayed that ultimately that would be what was happening that day. That this terrible event would bring with it its own kind of heartbreaking, but necessary epiphany. Perhaps this event would be the event that revealed how dangerous the former president's lies had become. Perhaps this would be the event that broke the thrall Trump had over his followers. Well, three years later, I still believe the events of January 6th, along with their aftermath, were revelatory. But it's also true the thrall remains. Right? I stand here today at the beginning of 2024 with, if I'm honest, a measure of existential dread. Another election looms about 10 months away. One that in spite of what I think many of us had hoped would be the case over the last three years, looks to be a repeat of the same matchup we had four years ago, but with two candidates more weathered than they were before, including one who himself is facing charges for those same activities on January 6th. And an American public potentially more cynical more frustrated, more divided in their understanding of the truth, including in the very real stakes for democracy, should Donald Trump return to the White House. On the national scene, it looks to be a challenging year. This year also starts as the death toll continues to mount in the Middle East. Concerns grow that the war in Israel and Palestine will extend beyond those borders. Calls for a ceasefire are becoming more and more urgent as half the population of Gaza currently faces starvation. Meanwhile, over 100 hostages from Israel are still being held in captivity. The situation might be complex, difficult to navigate, but the human need for a better, safer way forward cannot be denied. And this is only one of the spots beyond our borders that cries out for our compassion and care. War is still raging in Ukraine as well. ISIS is bombing funerals in Iran. Oh, on the international scene, it looks also to be a challenging year. Now, as I've been looking towards this year with concern and prayer in recent weeks, I've heard a phrase resonating through my mind. Whether it's the whisper of the spirit or some part of my own longing, I can't say for sure. But its continued resonance caused me, causes me to at least share it and invite all of you to ponder its potential invitation for us this year. Blessed are the peacemakers, I find myself hearing. Blessed are the peacemakers. These words, of course, are words that our tradition attributes to Jesus himself. In the passage of Matthew, we've come to call the Sermon on the Mount. Jesus shares a list of blessings 
commonly known as the Beatitudes. And in the midst of these, he says, blessed are the peacemakers for they will be called children of God. In the midst of so much rancor, so much violence, so much injustice, such high stakes, what does it mean to be a peacemaker? What could Jesus have been calling his followers to in the vulnerable state that they found themselves in? What did he expect of them? And what does he expect of us? How might living into that identity actually impact our communities? How might it demonstrate a kinship with the divine that can serve to impact the world around us for the better, to be called children of God. Now, I don't think Jesus was talking about conflict avoidance. <laughs> Simply staying on the sidelines, keeping our heads down, while injustice and violence continue unchallenged. Though if I'm honest, that might be my personal preference at times. I believe Jesus was actually calling us to something more challenging and more sacred to some kind of nonviolent conflict engagement and transformation. And this is what I hope to explore and ponder this year as we consider together what it might mean to make peace in 2024. And I thought perhaps we might start that conversation by coming back to that tradition of Epiphany. It is January 7th, considering afresh a story at the heart of it. So that's what we're going to do to kind of begin this exploration of making peace this year. So why don't you read with me the second chapter of Matthew as we ponder how this familiar story might ring at the beginning of this year and what it might have for us in this season. After Jesus was born in Bethlehem in Judea during the time of King Herod, Magi from the east came to Jerusalem and asked, where is the one who's been born King of the Jews? We saw his star when it rose and have come to worship him. And when King Herod heard this, he was disturbed and all Jerusalem with him. And when he had called together all the people's chiefs, priests, and teachers of the law, he asked them where the Messiah was to be born. In Bethlehem, in Judea, they replied, for this is what the prophet has written. But you, Bethlehem, in the land of Judah, are by no means least among the rulers of Judah. For out of you will come a ruler who will shepherd my people Israel. Then Herod called the Magi secretly and found out from them the exact time the star had appeared. He sent them to Bethlehem and said, go and search carefully for the child. As soon as you find him, report to me so that I too may go and worship him. After they'd heard the king, they went on their way, and the star they had seen when it rose went ahead of them until it stopped over the place where the child was. And when they saw the star, they were overjoyed. Now coming to the house, they saw the child with his mother Mary, and they bowed down and worshipped him. And then they opened their treasures and presented him with gifts of gold, frankincense, and myrrh. And having been warmed in a dream not to go back to Herod, they returned to their country by another route. 
All right. So this is a story many of us are no doubt very familiar with. It lies at the heart of our Christmas lore. We have these familiar characters, the young family, Jesus, Mary, Joseph. This story locates them in Bethlehem. It doesn't place them in a stable. It seems to imply they're residing in a home. But uh, by the time Magi arrive, many, many, you know, scholars name, it's probably been months, if not more than a year after the child's been born, just given the logistics of what it would have taken on that day to, in that time, to engage the kind of pilgrimage that this story describes. So we have the Holy Family still in Bethlehem. We have King Herod, the Jewish leader that rules the province kind of with the support of the Roman Empire, who actually is occupying the region. Beyond our New Testament stories, other historical accounts do verify that Herod was a jealous, tyrannical ruler who grasped tightly at power and was unafraid to use violence to hold on to it. Sounds familiar, right? He was said to have killed a number of his own family members, including one of his wives, multiple of his children, simply because he felt threatened by them. So we have Herod. We have the chief priests, experts in the law, as Matthew describes them. The religious leaders of the day that Herod calls upon for some information in understanding what's happening. And then, of course, the characters that are at the heart of the narrative, the Magi from the East. While we can't know for sure, most scholars have come to believe these were likely Zoroastrian priests from Persia, religious leaders coming likely from what we would now identify as Syria. Astrology and its discerning of the stars was a core component of their spiritual tradition. Notably, these magi are not kings, nor is it clear there were three of them. These are traditions that have been built on the Christmas story over time, but are not actually a part of Matthew's narrative. Matthew simply calls this group of travelers magi, a word that could be translated wise people, but also includes a connection to the supernatural, or one might say, the magical. Many Christians throughout history have pointed to the visit from the magi and the celebration of Epiphany as a foreshadowing event. It's a sign of what's to come with the eventual ministry to Gentiles that will be core to the early spread of Christianity after Jesus's earthly life. And I think that's worth noting. But today I'm interested in reflecting on what's revealed by the beauty of how these magi conduct themselves and how they're included in our tradition, how they're part of a bigger thread in our Jesus-centered tradition that we would do well to notice and perhaps emulate as we consider peacemaking in our world today. So several weeks ago, this small group that Joanna and I uh, were leading this fall had our fourth and final meeting. And it was one in which we were discussing the question of how as people of faith, we might think about our relationship to other faiths um, or folks who claim no faith at all. As I think most of us would acknowledge, this is not something Christianity has always done well, right? Too often, Christians have engaged those of other spiritual traditions with an exclusivist, even triumphalist perspective, expecting others to convert to their way or perhaps be swallowed up by it. For centuries, the church has unfortunately partnered with the state effectively giving spiritual cover to the colonialist and capitalist projects of empire building. 
we are right to reject that way of being in the world and work to repair the harms that history has caused. And this, of course, is informing a core part of why we're, any of us are engaging this Haven project, right? We're seeking to build an alternative kind of spiritual community, one that cares about creating safety and honoring diversity while also centering on Jesus and the tradition he anchors as our spiritual orientation. And that might mean at times detaching from some problematic traditions we've inherited while we're trying to discern how the presence of Jesus may actually call us in a different direction. So that was kind of what we were talking about um, those weeks ago at that small group. Barbara Brown Taylor is an author, a religious professor, and an Episcopal priest. And in preparation for that small group conversation on interfaith connection, I, I read one of her books from recent years. It was titled, Holy Envy, Finding God in the Faith of Others. And in this book, Barbara Brown Taylor describes how her own Christian faith was renewed through decades of teaching a comparative religions class to undergraduate students in a university which included taking those students on field trips to visit mosques, synagogues, Buddhist temples, and more. And while many of the mostly Christian students initially expressed concern with visiting these sites from other faiths and participating in some manner in the practices there, inevitably the class was expanding and inspiring for everyone involved. And Barbara Brown Taylor was transformed through her decades of teaching it perhaps the most. Much of the book is spent telling stories of her encounters, the encounters that her and her students had in various religious spaces and how that they broadened their thinking about the world, about others, and ultimately about God. And for many involved, including Barbara Brown Taylor, this engagement with other faiths helped deepen the connection these folks had to their own Christian faith rather than in some way diminish it. So in one chapter, Barbara Brown Taylor describes how that engagement with other faiths caused her to read scripture in a different way. And I'm gonna, I think this is really helpful. So I'm just gonna read it at length, um, this passage from this book. In particular, she says, I looked for stories that supported Christian engagement with religious strangers, not as potential converts, but as agents of the God who transcends religion and never met a stranger. Beginning with the Persian Magi in Matthew's gospel and ending with the Roman centurion who recognizes Jesus as the son of God. The gospels are full of such characters, people who come from beyond the tribe to bless the tribe and then return to where they came from. In Judaism, they are called righteous Gentiles. I do not know what they are called in Christianity, but Jesus receives them more than once, whether they come from Samaria, Syrophoenicia, Canaan, or Rome. In story after story, they enter stage left, they deliver their blessing on the Christian gospel, and they exit stage right, leaving their mark on a tradition that is not their own. If it is easy for Christians to overlook the otherness, of these religious strangers, then I think that is because we assume that once they enter our story, they never leave it. In gratitude for their blessing, we baptize them as anonymous Christians. We make them one of us. A few do join us, but that is not the norm. In the case of the Persian Magi, 
Their appearance in Bethlehem is as surprising as a delegation of Methodist bishops arriving in Dharamsala to recognize the next incarnation of the Dalai Lama. Once they deliver their gifts to the starlit Hebrew baby, they go back to where they came from, presumably to resume their vocations as Zoroastrian priests. Yet every Christmas we sing of them in church as if they had never left. Good point, right? This to me seems like a profound observation she's making about our epiphany story. These magi are, as she says, religious strangers. They might be the first to, of their own accord, come and worship the Christ child. That doesn't make them Christians. And I believe that's a beautiful truth in the midst of our Jesus-centered tradition that our faith can be profoundly impacted by the gifts and contributions of others. And to receive those gifts and allow those voices of others to shape us by their wisdom does not diminish our own faith, it expands it. As we are invited to perceive the divine from new points of view and find in religious strangers something that's also familiar and shared, that we are both humans, we are all humans grappling with sacred mysteries that are in some way beyond any of us, amen? Those Zoroastrian priests did not discern the sacred presence in Jesus by studying the Hebrew scriptures, right? That was the task of those chief priests and teachers of the law that Herod consulted. No, they discerned something sacred through their own rituals through their own religious practices, rituals and practices that no doubt many of those religious leaders Herod consulted, as well as probably many Christians in our time, would look at with suspicion, if not fear, calling them sorcery, witchcraft. But Matthew doesn't chide these magi for their sacred knowledge by some other tradition, nor does Jesus when he encounters those outside his religious community. Rather, he seems to embody a tradition that is woven from throughout the Hebrew scriptures all the way through the New Testament of welcoming and loving the stranger. The title of this book I've been referring to, reading from, is Holy Envy. And the phrase, it's an interesting phrase, right? Holy Envy. It's inspired by the work of a man named Christer Stendhal. Christer Stendhal was a 20th century theologian. He uh, eventually became the bishop of the Church of Sweden in Stockholm, and then eventually the dean of the Harvard Divinity School for many years. And one of the legacies Stendhal is best known for comes from his time when he was the bishop in Stockholm, when he famously coined three rules for what he called religious understanding. And I think all of them are worth our consideration as we discern how we want to relate to folks of other traditions. And this may even go beyond how we think about folks of other religions, but other points of view as well. Stendhal taught the following. When trying to understand another religion, you should ask the adherents of that religion and not its enemies. Good point, right? And yet how often do we actually do that? Or have we heard people do that? Number two, don't compare your best to their worst. Don't compare your best to their worst. 
And number three, leave room for holy envy. Leave room for holy envy. So what did Stendhal mean when he talked about holy envy? Well, in an interview later, um, when he was working in the U.S., he described it this way. When we recognize something in another tradition that is beautiful but is not in ours, nor should we grab it or claim it. We Americans in our imperialism think that if we like something, we just incorporate it. And we think that we honor others by doing so, but that is not the way. Holy envy rejoices in the beauty of the others. When Barbara Brown Taylor is celebrating the religious stranger, whether they are the Magi in Matthew, the Roman centurion, or the Hindu priest who welcomes her class to his temple, she is practicing holy envy. It is the envy that seeks not to conquer another's tradition, but recognizes the value of it, seeks to learn from it and honor it. Friends, in this year when we are being pulled into numerous conflicts that we didn't choose, but that we must not avoid, I wonder if there might be an epiphany gift for us in this invitation from Christopher Stendhal and Barbara Brown Taylor into holy envy, into cultivating a position of holy envy. Clearly not every perspective coming from those we might consider strangers is a gift to us. It's not what I'm saying. Nor is every claim another might make one we need to honor ourselves. But I do think that part of Jesus's blessing for us as peacemakers includes his invitation to love the stranger and in that to leave room to be amazed. Leave room for holy envy. What if as people of faith, we could be known not as those who further entrench tribalism, but those who reach across perceived boundaries of belief and tradition to acknowledge shared humanity, shared longing to encounter mystery, learn from one another's cultures, sojourn at times into other worlds, into another's world, bringing the gifts of value we have to contribute and also receive with grace and wonder the gifts given to us. Some of you have heard me speak of one of the most sacred experiences I've ever been a part of, and it didn't happen in a church or in any other Christian setting. It took place in a yurt in Southern California in a ceremony I was invited to participate in and, and co-lead with two women who identify as priestesses of the divine feminine. This ceremony was organized as a time of blessing and sacred initiation for my sister, who had recently been diagnosed with metastatic breast cancer as she was beginning um, aggressive chemotherapy. The ceremony was unlike any ritualistic space I'd ever been a part of, drawing on a variety of pagan and indigenous practices. Those who were gathered had been intentionally chosen as the women that Mandy wanted to hold sacred space with her at that moment. As each woman in attendance entered, we were smudged with burning sage. In the yurt, we were given kava to drink. It's a it's a root 
which when you drink it can dull your senses, was meant to help us connect in a deeper way with the sacred. One of the priestesses beat a drum and invited us to chant with her as we called upon the sacred mother's presence. And then we were invited into embodying the myth of Inanna. It's an old Sumerian pre-Christian story about a goddess who descends into the underworld for the sister she loves. And as she descends, the goddess Anana passes through several thresholds, and at each one, uh, a guard requires her to remove a garment. By the time Anana has passed through all the layers of the underworld, she is entering death, and she has been completely disrobed. As this intimate group of women listened to the story, we also embodied it, allowing my sister, like the goddess, symbolically, uh, to disrobe and descend in her own way. By the end, she lay on an altar of flowers, symbolizing her own death. The women around her brought floral tributes to adorn her, she who had been symbolically enacting her own process of being stripped away. The women bowed before her and prayed for her. And in that moment in the ceremony, I had been asked to lead a song. I was asked to lead this room filled with women I didn't know who came from traditions very different than my own. I chose a song I had written, one which I've led here many times, and I invited the women to sing it with me sensing that the words were universal, that they spoke to a longing all of us shared for a sacred presence that could accompany us, could accompany my sister. I believe you when you say you're here with me. We sang with tears streaming down our faces. And as each of us sang these words, accompanying and serenading my sister, I had never felt them to be more true. For me, that was not an experience I think I will ever have again. I would not seek to try to recreate it. It is not mine to take, but it was beautiful to participate. And it certainly inspired holy envy in me. This orientation of holy envy may mean that we find ourselves sometimes in the company of those who might surprise us. Whether that brings us to a yurt in Southern California, or it means we're involved in an interfaith campaign for justice and human rights in Gaza, or in a bipartisan campaign for democracy and election integrity. Even as I feel the existential dread around this coming election season, I also see these little glimmers of encouragement I can't help but want to pray into. As courageous voices of conscience even if there's only a few, within conservative spaces, do everything they can to try to speak out and tell the truth of the danger of Donald Trump poses to the party and democracy as a whole. Voices like former Congresswoman Liz Cheney, legal voices like Judge Michael Luddick, who was one of the primary conservative legal voices 
who's been advocating for the argument that Trump should be disqualified by the 14th Amendment from even appearing on any ballots. Now, I may disagree with these people on policy on every number of issues, but I can stand in solidarity with their commitment to preserve our democracy. I can honor their willingness to take steps even when it costs them everything they have politically as courageous. I can believe that somehow though we come from different spaces and have all kinds of different beliefs, have all kinds of conflicts, we will continue to engage. The fact that we are aligned and how we understand what was revealed on Epiphany 2021 might just be a sign that some truth that is greater than political allegiance or media spin might be at work in our midst. And I want to have the courage to honor that and follow it. So as we look to the year ahead, I want to end by reading one more excerpt from Barbara Brown Taylor's book. And I invite us all to receive it as kind of a blessing and encouragement in this call to peacemaking and holy envy this year. This is how far my holy envy has brought me, she says. From fearing that Jesus will be mad at me for smelling other people's roses, to trusting that Jesus is the way that embraces always. Because there is only one of me, I can only walk one way at a time, but that does not prevent me from believing that other people might be walking their ways with equal devotion and goodwill. No one owns God. God alone knows what is good. For reasons that will never be entirely clear, God has a soft spot for religious strangers, both as agents of divine blessing and recipients of divine grace, to the point that God sometimes chooses one of them over people who believe they should by all rights come first. This is a great mystery, but it does nothing to obscure the great commandment. In every circumstance, regardless of the outcome, the main thing Jesus has asked me to do is to love God and my neighbor as religiously as I love myself. The minute I have that handled, I will ask for my next assignment. For now, my hands are full. May we all find our hands and hearts full with this kind of work this year. Amen. Let me pray for us, and then we'll go into our time of conversation. Holy One, we recognize the beauty and the mystery that you are one who we have seen uh, demonstrated in the life and story and death and resurrection of Jesus Christ. And yet we also see in our own tradition that you are the one, the way that holds many ways. We see difficult ways ahead this year. I don't think we have to have a lot of prophetic capability to see that. We do need prophetic capability to understand how we face it, 
how we don't just avoid the conflict, hide in our spaces of relative privilege or safety, unwilling, unable to be a part of transforming what's around us, of participating in the work of the kingdom of God. Would you give us eyes to see the strangers among us we might learn from, we might be inspired by, we might follow? Would you give us eyes to see the gifts available to us, both within our own tradition and as blessings from others? I pray for holy alliances of holy envy this year across all kinds of cultural um, boundaries. Amen. All right, friends, we are gonna take our time for some conversation. We'll have about 10 minutes or so. Um, and so here are some potential questions and, uh, or of course, as always, feel free to talk about whatever is stirring up for you. Um, but here are some prompts. How has your journey of faith been impacted by the presence of quote, religious strangers? And what gifts have you received from those outside your own faith or tradition? What gifts maybe have you been able to give? What does this idea of holy envy mean to you? And finally, how do you think any of these themes might connect with making peace in 2024? All right. So uh, as always, we'll break into groups of four to six. We'll talk for about 10 minutes, and then we'll come back into closed in worship. 